Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're going to be in Exodus 5, if you have your Bibles. It's a privilege preaching here. And I want to uh, finish up this morning's seminars, um, actually a little bit with what Pastor Warner was talking about. You know, it's very encouraging for someone who's sitting in a wheelchair and who's battled cancer more than once to say there's more to suffering than the physical. And I want to uh, move into really a specific area of of suffering or really just struggling, and that is our dealings with people. Much of, obviously ministry is dealing with people. We're serving people, and we're trying to save people from hell, and we're trying to get people into their destinies and everything that God has for them. And they're not always going to respond uh, properly. And so that is going to cause some problems for for ministers in our minds, that's going to play with us, that's going to do a lot of things to us. The devil is able then to come in and produce some, some crazy things that go on in our minds. Oswald Chambers wrote this, Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified The penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. I want to read just before we get to our text, and you can also put your your finger in Colossians. I'm going to get there a little bit later, but I want to read one verse in Philippians. 129 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That word suffer means to experience a sensation or impression uh, or, or to, uh, to be vexed. And so that, that idea of experience a sensation, you can, uh, you can say when someone asks you how your church is going, you can say it's sensational. And, and that means it's going really bad or really not bad, not, 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 not so good. <laughs> Suffer. And in Colossians, the, the last time I read the Bible through, I'm, I'm on a, probably a similar uh, schedule that Pastor Webb is, but uh, going through the Bible, the, towards the end of last year and into this year, this, this theme of suffering has really... It's it's stuck out to me more than it ever has before, and it's just over and over and over again. Colossians one twenty four. This is I'm going to get to this in more depth later. But Paul writes, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake." Now either this guy is a sadistic freak of nature, or there's something that he understands about suffering that we need to consider 
in our lives and in our ministries. I'm not just talking to, to pastors, although that's probably the, the, the epitome of it, but really Paul writes that we're all ministers of reconciliation. And so at whatever level you're at, you're dealing with new converts in your church or you're pastoring, whatever the issue is, you will suffer, and it's going to be many times at the hands of other people. Let's read our text, Exodus 5, and we're going to go uh, starting in 22 and then through chapter 6 a little bit. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment." Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt." The first thing I want to consider with you is the voice of God. We have here God giving Moses, and this is not the first time that he, that he did this. We know the whole burning bush episode and all of these things. Moses has an extremely clear idea of what he needs to do. He needs to go to Egypt. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to give signs to the Israelites, and he's also going to perform signs in front of Pharaoh He's under no delusion of what he's supposed to do. The, the, the message of God that we have to deliver is a very clear message. We are to preach the gospel. We are to preach that people need to be saved. You need to come out from among them. Very, very clear. Colossians 1.25, what we read. Paul says, I am to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. He has no ideas other than the Word of God. I am preaching the Word of God. There's nothing else that needs to be preached. I am going to do this. There's a very clear message. The voice of God is speaking to Moses here, and he's saying, you will go to Pharaoh, you will go to the, uh, the Hebrews, and this is what you're going to say. 
The voice of God or the word of God then demands a response. We love the Acts response where it's, what must I do to be saved? And 3,000 people were added to the church. That's not the response we usually get. But either way, the, the word of God, the voice of God demands a response. It will be for God or against God. Here in our text... Here's a people who've been living now under bondage and slavery over 400 years. They have heard about the freedom. They've heard about the promised land. They've been raised, born and bred under slavery, but hearing about the promised land. And now here Moses comes, and it says here, they did not listen to him. The word of God demands a response, and many times the response we get is... Liar. Right? I, don't, I don't believe you. How do you tell someone who's been in bondage to drugs or alcohol and has been going to AA and NA and whatever A, God can deliver you in a moment of time? That's the truth. But they don't always believe that, do they? So I have in, in my church Nepalis, and there was a guy from Iraq who was coming, and a lot of different people, a lot of different, uh, s- several different nations, including uh, America, including really the ghetto, and, and that's, it was, so we're dealing with different languages, different cultures, all sorts of different things, and for me, church kid, to come and tell these Nepalis who've been, ra- who've been raised and living in a refugee camp for 18 years under a caste system that God has a destiny for you. Where that's the word of God, but it's been a year and I'm not sure even one of them believes that yet. This Iraqi, it's him and his son, his whole family, they had gone out to the market in Iraq around Baghdad and several years ago, and they come back home and his entire family's slaughtered. And I, who've never experienced anything even remotely like that, I'm going to tell him that God is going to help you with your pain and with your grief, and he's going to put your life back together. He can do this. While that is true, his first response is, liar, I don't believe you. And so what happens is you are dealing with people of all kinds in our churches or even on outreaches, and you have a heart for these people, these people who are just in the gutters of life or wherever wherever their circumstances have taken them, and you are trying to deal with them, you're trying to minister to them, you're trying to give them hope, you're trying to give them something to live for, and they're not listening. And sometimes that is the response of people when they hear a message of hope. One interjection here that we need to be careful of, especially as pastors, is that people don't... They don't always listen to us. Obviously. 
but that they don't listen to us all the time is not necessarily because they are hard-hearted or rebellious or unsavable. It is because, as in this text, it says, they did not listen because, it gives us this beautiful because, on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. See, maybe the people that we're dealing with have been so in bondage for so long that they're not going to respond the way that we would like them to respond the first time. So no one really is unsavable. It's just sometimes some people just take a little longer. So what begins to happen now is that as people, and as Moses did, we begin to take people's response personally. Like this is, yes, it's the voice of God, but I'm the oracle of God. I'm the one bringing this message to them. And this is Moses' statement here, and I, I think underlying this statement, his, his response to God here is almost like an envelope that is holding every bit of insecurity and inadequacy and anger and frustration. Because here's God who's telling him, like he's told him before, go out and tell him and I'm going to deliver him. Even though their work just got harder. Even though all these things just got harder, I'm going to deliver them. And Moses says, behold... You know, one of the things that we need to do when we read the Bible is remember that they are normal people like us. And they have normal emotions, and sometimes I think that, right or wrong, when Moses, when he went down to write, when he went to write down everything that happened here, he sort of, I wonder if he was editing out some things that he actually did say to God. Right? Like some Hebrew F-bombs or something. And, and so when he goes down, with, this, is, this is what people are going to be reading for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of years. And so I better sound like a great deliverer so it's no longer, man, these suckers ain't listening to me. It is, behold, your people have not heard me. So he's all spiritual when I don't know if that's really the case when it hap actually happened. Maybe it was. But these things, it's almost like Moses, you know, here he is, he stepped into his new ministry. And already, first time, things have not gone according to plan. Where he's gone in and he said, let my people go. And, and Moses said, okay, well they have enough time to do that, make their work harder. And so where it was first and ten, now it's about second and a hundred. Right? According to Moses. Like, you just got a really big setback here. And this is having, I believe, some effect on Moses. And we see him gradually throughout his life, the way he handled his people, eventually, God said, you're not going into the promised land because, because of the way you're handling this thing. See, he's letting things get to him. He's taking these things seriously and personally. And so what happens is sometimes that we begin to realize that people aren't responding to the voice of God, and so let's, let's bring in the voice of frustration. And maybe they'll respond to that. So you have your Sunday morning, and the numbers, whatever it is, 
and you preach on don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is the word of God. This is what it says. This is what it means. Come to church. And then your Sunday night and your Wednesday night are what they are. And so you kind of insert next Sunday morning maybe some frustration and say, well, the Bible says if you don't come to church and you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you're going to hell. Right? And so you kind of insert things or sometimes maybe you're inserting the voice of, instead of the voice of God, maybe the voice of Rush. Figuring maybe it's easier to get people to rally around a big elephant than this book. The voice of frustration. I want to look secondly at what is called in the secular world vicarious trauma. There's a uh, a company or an institution, I guess, it's called Headington Institute. And their motto is care for caregivers worldwide. And so what this is, vicarious trauma, uh, as by way of a definition, this website says can be, uh, vicarious trauma can be thought of as the negative changes that happen to humanitarian workers over time as they witness other people's suffering and need. And so what we're dealing with, again, is, just, is not just a response to one person's slamming the door in your face or one person's cussing you out or whatever, but a cumulative effect that as you minister for God over the long haul and as you're trying to break up ground in your city and you're trying to get people to come, even one service, and you're trying to do all of these things that the negative effects of that where they're saying, yeah, I'll come, and they don't come, and they're saying these things and they don't, that is going to have an effect on your mind. The Headington Institute has represented, they say, over 75 humanitarian organizations, over 50 countries, and over 30 religious denominations. That is, people who are going around the world feeding the poor, the Samaritan's Purse type, the Compassion International type. And so they are going here, and these people who, they supposedly have their act together, and they do, and they're giving help to these people, they're trying to feed these people, they're trying to give them some hope in life, and the ones who are giving the hope need hope. Right? Because of the cumulative effect that people's wrong and bad responses to the gospel have on you and I personally. See, it is not just that they are rejecting God. In a sense, we feel like this. We take it personally. We think that they're rejecting us, don't we? Basically, this whole idea of vicarious trauma points to the reality that much of the struggle and the suffering that we go through as ministers is directly because we minister to people. This sermon, which I forgot to give you the title, is Ministers in the Hands of an Angry Mob. <laughs> we are ministering. We are trying to do things for God. We are... We're just out there, the boots on the ground. We, we're, we're doing this, but there's the assaults of hell, there's the resistance, and you start to feel this mentally. 
They say there's about five phases of vicarious trauma, ranging from different things, from uh, on lower levels, vague anxiety and apathy and emotional fatigue, all the way up to things like depression, marital discord, sleeplessness, uncontrolled anger, grief and rage, loss of sex drive, paranoia, suicidal or homicidal thinking. Like, oh, you're back here again for the sixth time coming to be saved. So let's pray once again, and then I'll kill you. <laughs> These things are, we joke, but they're very real, at least in Rochester. So we have, we have Moses here again, who he has left a very secure job with good benefits, I guess shepherding on the backside of a desert, and he is now coming to be the great deliverer. He's going to this new city. They just took his wanted poster off of the post office wall, and now he's back in town to deliver the people. And he's just, I mean, you read the story of, of the Exodus and all the way through the wilderness, and Moses is just getting the raw end of the deal. He's up, on a, he's up on the mountain, and he's already told, God has told him already, tell the people, don't touch the mountain, or I'm going to kill someone. And so Moses tells the people, and he goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and God says, you know what? On second thought, you better go down and tell the people not to touch this mountain. And Moses said, I already did that. They're all set. He said, no, they're, they're morons. You go tell them again. <laughs> And if they don't, I'm going to open up a can of Sodom and Gomorrah on them. And they're going to regret even coming out of Egypt. So Moses is this guy who's just running back and forth, isn't he? He's just, why don't you talk to them yourself, God? Just tell them this, okay. God says this, are you going to do it? You're going to obey? Okay, we're going to obey. All right, they said they're going to obey, and then they end up not anyways. And Moses is back and forth, back and forth. No wonder he's, he's on, on the, in the very beginning, he's like, God, don't kill them. Blot me out instead. And then later it's, man, they are, you're right. They are rebels. Just kill them all. <laughs> See, working with people is going to have an effect on you. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms are, I mean, some of them are very uplifting. Some of them are not. <laughs> it's like David and, and the, whoever they are who happened to write them, the sons of Korah and all these people, it's like they ate a bowl of schizophrenia for breakfast. <laughs> Like, here's the Psalms. God, I love you. My soul longs for you. I hate my soul! Do this, and I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. How long are you going to suffer with these people? When are you going to blot them out of your sight? It's just back and forth and back and forth. That's just not normal life. That's people. That's ministering to people. 
It's I love them, I hate them, kill them, no, ki kill me. Just back and forth. There are spiritual effects as well. The, we have the mental, the emotional, there are also just spiritual effects. When we, you know, we are not just doing good deeds like a lot of the humanitarian efforts. We're trying to save people from hell. And so not only do we have just trying to do good works and you need to ride to the grocery store again, okay, but there are demons that get involved and there are spiritual, supernatural elements that are getting involved here. And we're dealing with old converts, we're dealing with new converts, we're involved in discipling people, we are investing in them, we're, you're pouring yourselves out for them, and then something happens or nothing happens, and they're not answering your phone calls anymore. And they're not coming around anymore, and they're just, it's just total, speak to the hand. People, you, you're involved in investing in a new convert, and someone backslides, and it can throw you for like three or four days, or weeks, right? You are very connected with these people trying just to save their souls, and they're not listening. This is what Moses said, hey, they didn't listen. You have a plan B? They're not listening to me. I'm trying to give them hope. I'm trying to get them out of Egypt. They are not listening. The devil then plays on your mind. Couldn't your preaching deliver them? Can't you, can't you heal someone already? What's wrong with you? Good counseling session. You know, and so, so you're working with people and they don't have a bad, they don't they have a good response mixed in with the devil's lying to you and playing on your mind. This is partly the tone of Galatians. In 4.16, Paul writes, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So we're working with people, we're telling them the truth, we have a very clear commission, we have a very clear voice of God, this is what needs to happen, you need to repent, you need to do this and this, and all of the things that are involved in discipleship, and they don't listen. We feel the weight many times of, of the unsaved, Jesus felt this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not. You know, you see people out there and you just, your heart breaks for them. You want them to come to church. And your heart is breaking because they just don't. Some years ago, Mother Teresa, when she died, some of her writings uh, were made public. And I believe this is really part of what she was feeling. And I think a lot of people were, were probably a little bit too critical of her. And because a lot of her writings were, you know, she was struggling with her assurance with God and with uh, issues of forgiveness. And there were times where she felt distinctly away from God and doesn't, wasn't really sure what was going on. And I, I'm not even touching that in terms of her. But I feel like that sometimes. I think Jesus felt like that. 
Why have you forsaken me? The weight of the world was on his life. And he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, some of this vicarious trauma, this spiritual trauma, it, it has an effect on you and you don't feel real tight with God all the time. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, we are hard pressed, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. You know, the, the more I go, it seems like the more that is the game. That is it. That's not just maybe an event that happens every five or ten years, that that becomes the life of the minister. Hard-pressed. I'm not saying there's not joy. The greatest joys I've ever felt and experienced have been in the ministry, but also the lowest lows. So the more, it is, the more you go, I believe that becomes it. Let's look finally at filling up what is lacking. If you can turn to Colossians, I want to bring out a little bit more of this text, which is what initially started this whole thing. Let's start in 24, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. In other words, this suffering is because of ministering to people because of the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations and has now been made manifest to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, very focused, I proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. This phrase, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that caught my eye. This phrase to fill up or filling up means to supplement. Some of you might take vitamins and vitamins are known as supplements. That means that not everything you need in your body you're going to get from your bowl of Fruit Loops in the morning. Believe it or not. They are supplements because you need certain things to supplement what you gorge yourself with. See, we do everything we can to avoid struggle and suffering, don't we? 
But this is essentially saying that God, as He is growing us, as He is building us as ministers, He allows defeat to supplement victory. He allows bad things and the suffering to supplement all the great things that are happening. All the success maybe you had in your mother church before you went out, now is the time to supplement all of those things as you pioneer. See, we don't like this, all the, the hard work and the suffering of the, of the life, but we need essentially to adjust our perspective of this idea of suffering. Paul here is not playing the poor me card. He's not just writing, in, writing from jail or writing from wherever, and I'm just rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. No, he understands something about suffering, that it is having an effect on their lives, because his suffering is because of them, but also the good things that are happening are for their benefit as well. He says that for your benefit. Some of you might sing that song, you give and take away, you give and take away, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Then again, it is said that Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. Oh, you give, you give, blessed be your name. How was, when was the last time you said you take away, blessed be your name? The suffering, blessed be your name. Paul is talking here, and he gives us this, this picture of a ministry hidden from past generations and ages, and this mystery is Christ in you. We heard this a little bit from, from Pastor Warner, but the whole idea of, of being Christ-like is to be Christ-like. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. John 16, 21, Jesus is talking about sorrow turning to joy. He says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, in the suffering, in the things in your life, something is being birthed in you. This is what you've got to understand about suffering and this whole idea of the cross experience for every single one of us is that something is being birthed in us. And he gives us this. It is Christ in you. The problem is we have the, the expectations of feeding the thousands and all the people following us. We have the expectations of success. We only want to be Christ-like insofar as there are success and miracles. But we don't want to be Christ-like many times that when we're hanging on our cross and suffering, when Jesus says, I'm not going to call down the legions of angels, when that's exactly what we want to do, and you don't like my flyer? Fine, go to hell. Lightning! <laughs> right? Or whatever the suffering is, I'm... We don't like to suffer. 
We don't like the struggle of we don't like the struggle of Christ being formed in us. Galatians 4:19. Paul writes, "My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you." Through the struggle, through the suffering, through the expansion of a pregnant woman, something is being formed. In your suffering, you need to, again, adjust your perspective. Something is being formed as you suffer. Something is formed. There is a point to it. I want to make a statement that I made to my congregation a couple months ago, and it's been kind of roaming around in my mind for the last several months. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think it's true. Judging from Jesus' cross experience... That he says, take up your cross and follow me. And so, with a cross experience, there's going to be a cross. And with Jesus' cross experience, there's not much in the realm of victory, is there? So what I want to say to you is this. That as you take up your cross, and as Jesus took up his cross, you are never more Christ-like than when you suffer and when you forgive. That is what Jesus did on the cross, didn't he? He suffered and suffered and suffered, but he forgave and forgave. He forgave the thief. He forgives everyone around him. God, forgive them. At the hands of people, you're going to do a lot of suffering and you're going to need to do a lot of forgiving. And in that... Christ is being formed in you. What about fruit? What about the success? Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. See, fruit can become an idol. Your goal in life should not be fruit necessarily, although it's nice, it should be to die. And out of the death comes the fruit. So what is our response here? In verse 12 of our text, Exodus 6, 12. Here Moses is feeling all the inadequacies and he's feeling rejected and he's feeling all the things that we feel, no doubt, being this wonderful, great deliverer. And verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, Moses says, hey, they're not listening. The people aren't even listening to me. I'm, I, why even go barge the gates of hell or Pharaoh when your guys aren't even listening to me? What's the point? And God pretty much just ignores him, doesn't he? And he says, I gave you a charge. I'm giving you a charge again. You go and deliver my people. So we place the struggle into the hands of God. And we move forward doing what we're supposed to be doing. 
knowing, understanding that Christ in the struggle, in all the suffering, in all the mental things, all the mind battles, Christ is being formed in you. In, uh, at the end of last year, they did a, a survey in Bulgaria. And I have a couple, there's a couple of my, of my friends here in this church who are Bulgarian, so I won't, I won't knock on them too much. But there was something called, well, let me back up. They were asked to vote on what is the most revolutionary household product of the 20th century. They voted something called a chushkopek. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. The Chushkopek. We have here in this, whatever this word is, a household appliance that can roast seven peppers all at one time. That's what they voted as the most revolutionary product of the 20th century. Cell phones, electricity in your house. I mean, let me count the ways. See, they boiled everything that is happening around them. They're boiling everything that is happening in the entire world down to their little country and down even to their little kitchens. And the most exciting revolutionary product is something where you can do seven at once. Wow! Electricity came in at 16%. Television and radio, 13%. Cell phones, 10%. And a full quarter of Bulgarians said the Chushkopek is the most revolutionary product. See, that's what we do. That's what we do in our lives, that we... We boil all, this, all, the, all of life, all the successes, everything we boil down to something and we focus on our suffering usually. And we boil it all down to our little kitchen. When there's a big old world out there and a lot of good things are happening. You can't focus on that. Neither, on the other hand, can you focus on success. Jesus tells his disciples when they come back, don't rejoice in this. In other words, all their successes of healing and all these things, but just rejoice that your name is in the book of life. If he tells that about their successes, we can also say that about your failures, that you, you may have some, and you may be suffering like crazy, but your name is in the book of life. One last, one last story. Out of Mark chapter 4, and it's, it's a little bit of a parallel here. And Jesus has just finished some ministry and he's telling his disciples, let's go across this lake. Mark chapter 4, 35 through the end of the chapter. Most of you know the story. The disciples get in the boat. Jesus gets in the boat. Jesus falls asleep. He's resting. His disciples, they are struggling against this storm that just comes up in life. They are struggling, the Bible says. They're suffering. This is not the first time they've been on a boat. This is not the first time they've been in a storm. This might be just the first time 
since following Jesus, they were in a storm because they thought maybe that if they weren't, that if they followed Jesus, there wouldn't be that kind of thing anymore. But at Jesus' word, he says, let's go across the lake. And they sail right into a storm. Jesus is sleeping. Disciples are struggling. They are suffering, screaming, waking him up. We're going to die. Don't you care about us? And he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What he does is he says, you know the story, peace be still, calms the wind, calms all of those things. Isn't it interesting? That here is what we view as this great miracle of the creator of the world who created wind and he created water. How much of a miracle is it for the creator God to say, Hey, be quiet. I'm trying to sleep. Is that much of a miracle, really? How, and it, and it is, we, we, from our perspective, I think, but how much of a miracle is it even for God who created your body to heal you? I mean, that is a miracle, yes, but, but how much more a miracle is it for God to tell his disciples to go to the other side and them going through a struggle, and how much of a miracle would it be for God to be able to calm them? To heal a body, to calm a sea, he made those things, they, they obey him, but to get a person going through suffering, going through a struggle, to just be able to go to sleep through it, to rest through you're suffering. I'm not talking about seeking struggling. I'm not talking about going to the Philippines like the Catholics over there and literally being crucified so they can join in the sufferings of Christ. I'm not talking about seeking suffering. I'm talking about accepting it when it comes, but being able, by the grace of God, to rest through it. See, here's the thing, that on the other side of that struggle... There was a man that we don't even know his name, but we only know him as the Gadarene demoniac. See, on the other side of your struggle, there's something, there's something for someone else. We want to see people saved, and sometimes it's at the other end of your struggle. It's at the other end of your suffering. That if you could just allow God to let you rest through that and not struggle. What's the point of struggling against wind and waves? It's just what it is you... Allow God to let you rest. Like, come on, where's your, where's your faith? There's room. Come, come sleep. Come rest. And so we go. We do what we need to do. We rest. We place our trust and our future and all of our lives into the hands of God. We come crawling to the cross. No one is just leaning up against the cross of Christ. We're all crawling there on our hands and knees, needing the grace of God, and it's there for you. Amen. Let's pray this morning.
First of all, very quickly, we want to ask if there's anyone here, you're not right with God, you've come in here by invitation, or maybe you're visiting from the local area, and you're not a Christian, you're not right with God, you don't know that if you died today, if you would make heaven your home, God can give you that assurance, the, the issue is your sin, and God has called us to repent of our sin in order to be in relationship with Him, if you would like to do that, you want to give your life to God, if you would lift up your hand quickly, put it right back down. Anyone at all, quickly. Okay, changing the call then, we're going to open the altars. We heard from Pastor Warner about the silence of the Lamb. Are you trying to vindicate yourself, or can you allow God to vindicate you. Loss of destiny in this place. Seeds of rebellion he talked about. Pastor Webb, the seedbed of spiritual inheritance. Altar experience, the tent. Are you mobile? Are you tapping into the life of God? Do you have dominion in your life? Survive the conflict. Ratify for yourself the inheritance and the promises of God. It's not just for the person next to you. You need to do that yourself. Companionship, touched on briefly. Daughters of Sarah. We need couples to be one, to be focused on the will of God. I ministered on suffering Allowing God to touch you and to allow you to rest through it. And yes, you just go back out there and you go bombard the gates of hell. You go back to Pharaoh. You go back to the people. You do what you need to do. But through that, obeying the voice of God. Let's go to the other side. They are obeying the voice of God. Right into a storm. God gives them this revelation on the other side of this. It is a point. Christ is being formed in you. Don't try to avoid the struggle. Don't try to avoid the suffering. When we're dealing with people, there is going to be a lot of it. You are going to be pressed. You are going to experience these things, but you need to come to the cross of Christ to allow His grace to touch you to move forward. Amen. We're going to sing a song. You can come to the